Tonight, what I want to talk about is <clears throat> comes from a phrase I read in uh, a book by a Tibetan master, Namkai Norbu, which is turning adverse circumstances into the path. And it stayed with me a lot, this phrase. I use it a lot in my practice. So just some different thoughts about working with this. And the first thing that comes to mind is that in in working with adverse circumstances, the most helpful thing to me has been a sense of strong commitment to my path, to the possibility of our human potential of awakening. I just want to share something that strengthens this commitment in me, kind of makes me reflect and bring up my commitment. And that's when I travel in third world countries, which I have occasion to do from time to time. This last year I spent some time in South Africa, which is, it's a, it's a unique combination of the white people live very well, much as we do, and the black people live in really poor third world conditions in some of the Zulu villages. And it's the same as being in India, really. And what this seeing the conditions people live in, real poverty, near starvation, grinding work just to survive. It it brings to mind, it's another Tibetan reflection on the preciousness of a human birth, or more particularly for me, the preciousness of the particular human birth that I have this time around. That there are certain conditions that are essential for being able to practice and I often take them for granted don't don't even look at them so it's appreciating my circumstances and some of these conditions are first a certain degree of health and all of us in this room whatever our physical condition we at least have enough health that we can give some of our energy give our time to understanding what our life is about. Not the kind of um, near starvation conditions where all one can do is scrabble to survive. Um, So it's really appreciating that. Um, We're alive at a time when this Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, is alive in the world. In terms of the Buddhist cosmology, there are times when these teachings aren't alive in the world, and then we'd have to each discover it for ourselves. And while we each have to discover our own truth for ourselves, at least we have teachers, things to read, people we can go together with and sit with, you know, other people to inspire us. And this is a great gift, and one that it's easy for me to take for granted, knowing as I do so many people who are interested in practice, in awakening, whatever practice they happen to be doing. But it's a rare opportunity in life. Another one, another condition, is that we're all actually interested in waking up, in hearing the Dharma. And this might seem uh, kind of obvious, but not everyone is blessed with the interest even when there's the opportunity. I've spent uh, a fair amount of time in Bodh Gaya in India which is a real Buddhist pilgrimage spot because it's the place where the Buddha was supposedly enlightened 
and a lot of pilgrims come, but also many, many really inspiring teachers of all the different Buddhist lineages, Zen, Tibetan, Theravada, and also many Hindu teachers as well come to Bodh Gaya. And we go there and visit and we we meet people, for instance, there's a family that runs a particular chai shop, a tea shop, where everyone hangs out all the time when you're in Bodh Gaya. I mean, there's nothing to do but go to the Bodhi tree and go to the chai shop. And that takes all day to do those two things. Um, and the family, they're really lovely, but they live there. They, they work hard, but they have leisure time. They're healthy. They're not, just not interested. You know, they're just not, it's not their interest. And so it makes me really appreciate that I have this interest. I'm willing to hear, able to hear. And then again, that I have enough leisure time and the willingness to put the teachings into practice. That I don't have to work so hard on a subsistence level that there is not a spare moment in my life. And literally, Many people in really poor, poverty-stricken conditions live in that way. You know, like if you read City of Joy about Calcutta, they're talking about these rickshaw pullers, men who pull rickshaws that people drive in. They literally work every moment of the day just to get enough money to buy food for that day. There's no way someone like that is going to be able to have the time to go off and investigate the meaning of life in the way that we can. So when I reflect on these really blessings in my life and in all of our lives to some degree or we couldn't be here, what it does is is wake me up to a deep sense of urgency, of commitment. You know, I start thinking, okay, I have all these gifts. What do I really want from my life? What is my real purpose in life? What do I want to commit my time and my energy to? You know, not to lose sight of it. That as human beings, as a human being, I have the potential, you have the potential to wake up, to know really deep peace, to come to freedom from this toing and froing, restless agitation of the mind. Sometimes it's almost scary to really connect with this possibility in oneself, to really commit oneself to it. You know, it's almost as if I think, well, yeah, the Buddha could do that, or some Tibetan Lama who lives in a cave, but not just an ordinary person like me. Almost as if afraid I'm not good enough. And to really honestly get in touch with that my purpose, my potential is that I can awaken. If I honestly commit myself to that, then I'll just spend the rest of my life being disappointed when I find out that I can't do it. You know, And again, a reflection that really helps me a lot is to remember that the Buddha was a human being, not a god, And we say, well, he was a really special human being, different from us, you know. And anyone else who awakens is different from us. It's impossible. That thought holds us back. That thought is what limits us and keeps us from actually being willing in ourselves 
to commit only in this moment. Can I commit to really being present in this moment? So anyway, the reflection that the Buddha was a human being and we as human beings all have the same potential can help me in times when I feel constricted by my fears. He said a lot when you read some of the discourses of the Buddha. He often said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do this. And from what I've read of what the Buddha said or what comes down to us that he said, he didn't say things just off the top of his head. You know, he really said what he meant. And that's quite inspiring to me. Whenever it's something really hard, it's like if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. Again, it helps me to connect with what is my real purpose and am I willing to commit myself to it. Another fear that sometimes comes up that in talking with people is fear of really getting in touch with our desire, so to speak, to be free, to awake, is almost our fear just of that word, the fear of desire. Because the, the more we practice and study this meditation, and what the Buddha said in his Four Noble Truths is that desire is the cause of suffering, right? And we can certainly experience that moment to moment. So there's this, well, what am I doing awaking another desire? There's something off about that. Something that I found very interesting in beginning, I've a little, little bit been studying Pali, which is the language that the, the earliest Buddhist texts that we still have are written in. In Pali, there's three different words that can all be loosely translated as desire in English. And one of them is the word that more specifically we could translate as craving, tanha. And that's the one that is really referred to as the cause of suffering. It's that needing, grasping, I've got to have, you know, the mind going out and clinging to something, whether it's an apple or anything, you know, it doesn't matter what it is you're clinging to, but this thirst, really, that's another translation of it. That's the cause of suffering. There's another word that sort of denotes a neutral, a neutral desire, you could say, which is you're sitting, you know you're hungry, and there's the desire to eat. Not craving, I've got to have a certain food, just to know, I need to eat now. I need to sleep now. I need to go to the bathroom. You know, it's not a huge thirst. And then there's another word um, that our kind of rough translation would be dharma desire. And what that really is, is this, It's this impetus, this yearning for understanding, for understanding our true self. In some way, if we didn't all have it, it's what drives us to practice. I mean, this is hard. We wouldn't just be sitting here on on our bottoms for two days and going through all this stuff if there wasn't some desire or some yearning driving us. And it doesn't have to be negative. It doesn't have to lead to suffering. This is a quotation from Nisargadatta Maharaj, a whole different lineage, a Hindu Vedanta master that's about this. The desire to find the truth will be surely fulfilled 
providing you want nothing else. But you must be honest with yourself and really want nothing else. And I think on a moment-to-moment basis, not that every moment of our lives we never want anything else, but that quality of wanting to understand, to be free, that level of commitment is what, as human beings, enables us to heal from our perceived sense of separation and isolation. I mean, it's not a reality anyway, but it's our perception. And this deep commitment of our hearts, of our energy, is what allows us to awaken. If we are willing to give our hearts, our minds, to this quest, this journey, not to me that means not to be afraid to commit myself inwardly. Over and over, it doesn't mean I commit myself and then from, from now on, every moment, I'm incredibly present and mindful. But it means I'm willing to commit myself again in two minutes when I've spaced out or blown it or done something really stupid. That's okay. I feel that this sense of, of deep inner commitment, and it can deepen and deepen, you know, It's this that can really serve to inspire us or at least sustain us and uphold us on our path when we hit difficult times. In other words, when we hit seeming obstacles, which is (laughs) all the time, a lot. (laughs) As, As... you've no doubt observed, it's our tendency. It seems to be the inbred tendency of our human minds, at least our deep, deep conditioning, that we perceive or interpret difficult situations that arise, whether it's a pain or a really difficult situation in our life. We interpret them as obstacles. This is something that's in the way. It's either in the way of my being happy, in the way of my getting what I want, or in the context of our growth in understanding, it's in the way of my awakening. So as long as I have this sickness, which keeps me from sitting cross-legged and doing this and that, and keeps me tired, that means you know it's in the way. When I get rid of it, then I can really practice in the right way. There's some ideal of what right practice looks like. This is keeping me from it. It's an obstacle to be gotten rid of. The same for as long as I have this tiring, boring job that takes all my energy, I can't possibly give any energy to awakening. As long as I'm in this difficult, conflictual family situation, how can I possibly work to come to peace and harmony when I'm arguing with my relatives all the time? Substitute anything. It's our natural tendency to interpret this is wrong, it's got to get rid of it, and then I can really begin to commit myself to practice. Flipping it around, when, we're, when we have a sense of commitment to investigate, is when we begin to see that we learn that these so-called obstacles, they're not just something that we can put up with, they actually can become part of our path, 
a very intrinsic and helpful part of our growth in understanding and awakening. We grow because of these difficult situations, not in spite of them. There's a something I like in, in the Buddhist cosmology, which talks about all these different realms of existence. And it doesn't matter whether one believes it's true or not, really. But, but what I like in, in describing how obstacles can be helpful, why a human birth is so precious, they say that the, in, in the human realm, which is it's like on a level of 33, it's like six up from the bottom. <laughs> it gets nicer the higher you go. And they say in the human realm, there's enough suffering that we can use it to wake up. It's not, for most of us, so much suffering that we're completely crushed and overwhelmed. But for some people in this world, it is too much. And in the higher realms, it gets so pleasant that there's not enough impetus to investigate, you know, you just kind of groove and hang out in these really nice sensual realms or formless realms, whatever. So the human realm is supposedly the perfect balance of pleasure and willingness to investigate and enough pain to keep giving us, you know, a jolt to wake up. So take that for what it's worth. But, okay, so how does one go about working with this turning adverse circumstances into the path? How does it work? Say, there's many things to say about it. I'm just going to give some thoughts. I feel deeply from my own experience that it comes down really very simply to our attitude, to this difficult or pleasant situation as well. The pleasant ones, we don't tend to fight so much when it arises. Do you know the Buddha in his first uh, discourse after he was completely awakened, he talked about four truths of our life in this world and that he said the deep knowing of would liberate the mind. And the first truth was that there is unsatisfactoriness sometimes translated suffering, but more unsatisfactoriness. And speaking not only of the actual and obvious difficult situations, painful, emotional, grief, outward, but also the, the sense of unsatisfactoriness and pain that comes from pleasant situations that are continually ending, which is everything, is continually ending. And that the cause of our suffering is not just that there's pain and pleasure, But the second truth is the cause of the suffering is this thirst, this clinging of the mind towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. So I used to think about this first truth, that there's unsatisfactoriness, I thought. I mean, why did he have to proclaim that as a truth? It seems fairly obvious on the surface, you know. I don't think... I mean, there are people who will dispute, but mostly, if we really look, we don't have to look that hard, it's clear that there is suffering in this world. But as I've reflected and observed more, I'm actually continually amazed by our ability to deny, resist, avoid this in our own lives, and I see it in others. The most 
kind of obvious example is once I was in a hospital and the doctor was, was doing a procedure, they're trying to put in an IV and not doing a good job of it. And it had been going on for some time. I mean, they had tried it five times and finally they called in the doctor. And uh, then I knew I was in trouble because nurses can do these things usually better than doctors. <laughs> anyway, he was digging and I was really at the end of my rope. I'd been there some time and I started crying. And he just looked at me and goes, what's the matter with you? This doesn't hurt. <laughs> I thought, whoa. And I really could understand because to open to the fact of the pain I was in was also opening, he had to feel that in himself and also be aware that in some way, out of good intentions, but that he was a part of inflicting it. And that's too hard to open to sometimes, you know? when we can't feel someone else's pain because we can't open to ours. And so that's a kind of uh, strong example, but in little ways, we do that all the time. And then in a more subtle level, I've been noticing that somehow acknowledging that many things just don't carry the satisfaction that I like to think they do was a huge relief in my life. It was kind of acknowledging my actual experience. Somehow I thought I should be happier than I was because I have so much. My life's so good. How come things aren't really blissful? There's something wrong with me. This Another example, very mundane, and this I think we could all see all the time. I've, I've told this before sometimes. Once a friend of mine and I, were, it was during the fall, and we were working at the meditation center in Barry. It was very intense. We were very tired. We decided to go to this health club and go swimming. And we were looking forward to it all day. It'll feel great. We'll relax. We'll have a good time. We'll go in the sauna. So we got there. We split up. He was a, a man, so we were in different dressing rooms. It was freezing, and I'm real susceptible to cold. So you know, I was hurrying up, getting my bathing suit, shivering. So well, I get in the pool, it'll be great. I got in the pool. The water was really, for me, quite chilly. So I was dashing back and forth. Going, God, I can't wait till I get out of here. You know, this is really nice, but I can't wait till I get out of here and get in the sauna. Ran into the sauna, and for a couple of minutes, oh, this is great. Then the bench got hard. Then I started to sweat too much. And then I went out of the sauna and it started freezing again. I went back in the sauna. Oh, this is really great. For two minutes, then it got too hot. I was sweaty. I had a headache. I went out, took a shower, went up and met my friend. We both said, that was great. (laughs) (laughs) And then for some reason we sat and talked about it, which is why I remember it in so much detail. And it was hysterical. It really, there were a few really nice moments. But it's in that, in being able to see that, it wasn't demoralizing really. It was kind of, oh, well, no wonder I don't feel completely blissed out. <laughs> some of it was nice and some of it really wasn't very nice at all. So it was a relief for me, acknowledging that there's a certain degree of unsatisfactoriness in much of my experience, not all of it, but much of it, and not to have to pretend that it's otherwise. And then again, that the cause of the suffering isn't that the water's cold or the sun is hot. It's that movement of the mind, that compulsive, conditioned, often unconscious movement of the mind towards anything pleasant and away from anything unpleasant. So the water's cold, my body contracts, and my mind, I don't like this, I want to get out of here. The sun is hot. It's pleasant. There's a total relaxing into it. As soon as it gets a little unpleasant, I don't like this. I want to get out of here. 
That's the cause of the suffering, not the cold, not the hot. This is from Nisargadatta again. Our true self is peace. It's only the mind that is restless. All it knows is restlessness with its many modes and grades. The pleasant modes are considered superior and the painful ones are discounted. What we tend to call progress is merely a changeover from the unpleasant to the pleasant. Changes can't bring us to the changeless. Changes can't bring us to the changeless. And as long as we're unaware of this tendency of mind, we merely need to be aware of it. As long as we're unaware of it, we continue to be caught in this maze of denying, discounting anything that's remotely unpleasant, waiting out the pleasant, trying to hold, waiting out the unpleasant, trying to hold on to the pleasant so that then things will be okay. So long as we're unaware of this tendency, so long we continue to be caught in the cycle. I call it, or some of us call it, rearranging the furniture. It's like we're in prison and the door's opened and it's unpleasant, but we figure if we can somehow rearrange the furniture, everything will be okay. As long as we continue doing this, trying to find the exact right arrangement that's most pleasant, It's this movement away from the unpleasant towards the pleasant, trying to control everything, that distorts our perception, that clouds our heart. We can't know reality as long as we're caught in rearranging the furniture. And it's not necessarily the situation itself that needs to change. It's our attitude. It's our willingness to come back and be with the furniture, no matter how it is, if it's incredibly peaceful or if it's really discordant. It's that attitude of being willing to be fully present, fully here with it, allowing it just as it is, and bringing our fullness of attention to be there with it that allows us to begin to see what's really true in this moment. It's this shift in attitude that turns obstacles from being obstacles into being a very important part of our path. Adverse circumstances aren't necessarily a curse because sometimes that's what wakes us up from all this toing and froing of the mind. Ajahn Chah, who was um, a great Thai meditation teacher and an abbot said once that there's suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering and so what's the difference and again it's it's the attitude very simple example you're sitting here and your knee starts to tingle a little and soon it turns into a throb and Soon, if it's suffering that leads to more suffering, it's like, oh my God, I'm never going to make it through this sitting. What am I doing here? I'm sitting wrong. Why don't they ring the bell? What's the matter with me? I should be able to sit better than this. Your mind starts spinning. You start judging yourself. You start judging the retreat. 
you're getting tenser and tenser, your mind's screaming. This is suffering that leads to more suffering. It's our relationship of there's something wrong, this shouldn't be here, this pain, and all this extra that we add on when we're not aware of it. And pretty soon, you know, we're really over the edge. The same, the same pain in the knee, the shift in attitude is simply to give it attention just as it is. There's a throb in the knee, we notice it. If it's really mild, we just acknowledge it and go back to the breath. If it's really strong, then we move our full attention into that throbbing simply because that's what's there. Not with any agenda, not to get rid of it, not to make it go away, not to prove we're such a great yogi and so equanimous, simply because that's the experience in this moment. It's a real gentle, compassionate kind of attention, open, but really clear and firm. It's not just kind of, oh yeah, there's a pain, back to the breath. That's what's there. We bring the attention out of the whirling thoughts into the sensation, noticing the tightness in our body, noticing the resistance in our mind. That whole train of dislike can happen, but we're noticing it, not to change it or to judge it or to place blame, just because it's there to know for ourselves what's really happening in this moment. And this shift in attitude can change that pain from being the source of our future hospitalization and disability into a chance to observe how much extra suffering we're creating through resistance to experience in a moment. This is the quality of openness, of investigation, that changes our whole experience because we start to see the reality. I mean, has it ever happened that you have a pain you think you're going to die from and the bell rings and suddenly it's just gone? (laughs) What happened to it? It's all extra. Because we stop fighting the experience, enough to simply be with it and see what that pain is, what's the experience of it, out of clear seeing, understanding can arise. Understanding, in this case, the nature of that sensation. It's it's impermanent, it's coming and going, it's changeable nature. Understanding of the extra suffering that the resistance to it and the fear puts on, how our fear of the whole hour is adding an immense amount of suffering onto the pain in this moment. And because we understand, we have a choice. We can act appropriately in a situation rather than just responding out of blind reactivity. So you have, say, the choice of seeing, yeah, I have a bad knee and this pain I recognize, it's the prelude to really hurting myself, it's appropriate to move. But it's not just the point, I hate this, I'm going to move. It's not coming out of aversion at all. It's coming out of really clear seeing and compassionate action. It's quite different from our usual pattern of deny, avoid. Because this is so strong, when something's unpleasant, we're usually unable to give attention to the actual situation. And we don't even know it. And so we don't even know what's happening. 
and we just stay lost in confusion and resistance and things get more and more painful. The Buddha said, the Buddha talked about unsatisfactoriness or suffering a lot. But he said that there's suffering that ripens as confusion and suffering that ripens as search. Again, the difficult situation can serve as a signal to investigate. And really, a whole new understanding can come out of this. But my, the most powerful example I've had of this in my life in the last few years was a period of time I spent in Thailand where I was practicing as a Buddhist nun in various, Buddha, various temples. And when I first went there the first couple of months, I had a hard time adjusting. The conditions were very unpleasant. You just have to adjust to Asia, and I hadn't done it yet. Um, very, very, very hot, and um, lots of poisonous snakes and insects and huts with tin roofs that baked, I mean, baked 120 degrees in a day and holes so all the insects came in and food that was making me sick. And, and I was in a really negative frame of mind, to say the least. And I, I was really committed. I didn't want to leave. But I was just, it was ripening as confusion, this suffering. I was just spinning in aversion. Every new thing that happened just bummed me out more. I was in a kind of blaming mode. Why don't they do this? Why isn't the food better? Why couldn't they make the huts better? Why do I have to wear these seven layers of polyester in this kind of heat? You know, on and on and on. I was really nursing my aversion without realizing it. And finally, what happened, it got to the point where it was insupportable and I either had to shift my attitude or I had to leave, which I didn't want to do. If anything, just because my friends would say, told you so. So the shift was to take back my energy from throwing blame outward and nursing aversion and just bring attention back to the situation. Not to figure out how can I make it better, because I couldn't change the conditions, but just to start looking directly at my experience. In other words, to be in my experience rather than continually trying to get out of it so that I could practice. I mean, this was my practice, only I wasn't letting it be. So, physically hot, be hot. Feel the hotness. Quit fighting it and thinking about air conditioning. Just be with hotness. Be with the taste of the food, whether I like it or not. Be with insect bites. Be with my fear of ants. And see how much of it's fear and how much of it's reality. Stop sending all my energy into useless complaining and just watch the aversion. Feel the aversion in my experience. And that willingness to come back over and over to my experience instead of trying to avoid it it was amazing, really, over a period of, t- of some months. Well, I saw pretty soon that what I had been doing was cultivating aversion, really feeding aversion. And just that s- acknowledgement of the aversion, in other words, that movement of the mind away from the unpleasant, just that seeing the power of that tendency allowed me to be much more present with the unpleasant. And the whole experience changed, really, by the time I left, the conditions were no better. In some ways, well, they had changed. They weren't really worse, but they weren't any better. 
my sense about being there was completely different. It was one of the most joyful times I remember in my life. Really quite wonderful. You know, and I'd spend a half an hour a day brushing out the ants. That was just part of what I did that day. It wasn't a problem. And I just learned so much from that, that in the same conditions there can be really tremendous joy and contentment. The real suffering was my resistance, was this movement away from the unpleasant, thinking I ought to be able to rearrange the furniture instead of just sinking into things the way they were. The unseen and unacknowledged resistance to the situation. So that, far from being something I just learned to live with, that seeming obstacle has been a vital part of my growth in equanimity and opening and understanding. I really learned a lot from that. And I'm not saying it's easy for any of us or at any time. This tendency of mind, this toing and froing, is so subtle and so pervasive, it's often really unconscious that it can be very hard to be aware of it. Like, you know, I sat for a couple of months with that, and that was pretty obvious before I could actually key, oh yeah, right, (laughs) aversion, that's what's going on. And also, I don't in any way mean to imply that all we have to do is see, oh, my mind is moving towards the pleasant away from the unpleasant, so then everything's fine and we're filled with this glowing peace. It is not so simple. Even when we're very aware of this tendency of mind and really committed, deeply committed to our willingness to be present both for the pleasant and for the unpleasant, and we really know we can open to difficult situations, we can open all at once to many things. And for almost, I would say almost all of us, certainly almost everyone I've met, including myself, there are many times when given our conditions, the state of our mindfulness, the state of our, our being at that moment, that there will be difficulties, sufferings, pains that are just too much for us to be able to open to at that moment. The Buddha also spoke of skillful avoidance as of great help in our path, knowing when to use it. He gave the example of when a mad elephant's charging at you, you step out of the way. We all, I feel, can really benefit from paying attention to this. Sometimes the mad elephant can be a strong physical pain. Sometimes it's a deep emotional grief or memory or something that's happening in our life. We contend, many of us, at least in the West here, have a tendency to be really hard on ourselves. And once we enter into this path in the sense of, you know, I'm opening to everything, when something comes up, no matter how overwhelming, well, I should be able to open to this right now. And if I can, it means I'm doing something wrong. Mindfulness is very attentive, it's energetic, but it's not strident. 
You know, mindfulness is not forcing ourselves to open no matter what. It doesn't work, for one thing. And it can lead us into a lot of pain and confusion and self-blame. So for each of us, it's finding in each situation that delicate balance. Some pains, physical pain, emotional pain, it comes up. We can really be there with it. It doesn't feel good. We might feel lost in this, but there's some mindfulness. There's feeling the grief in the heart. There's letting ourselves cry. There's feeling the heaviness. There's seeing the memories. And then we can gently, gently be with it. Sometimes it's so overwhelming that there's no sense of being able to be mindful and we just feel totally drowning. That might be a time to gently back off. It's not the same as repression. It's not, whoop, whoop, shut that one down. We'll pretend that's not around. And anything that reminds us of it, we go in the opposite direction. But it's for a time. We touch it. We open a little. We see we're getting overwhelmed and gently back off. If you're sitting, you can move your attention to hearing. You can go back to the breath. You can go elsewhere in the body. If it's in our life and we like running up against a brick wall, you don't keep running up against the brick wall. You try and move up to it, see if you can push it a little bit, it doesn't move, you back off. Back again. Do something to nurture the heart and the mind. Take a walk, do something in your life that's, that's nurturing, be with somebody you love, talk to a friend. We can't just be over and over and over and over with agonizing pain without some break. A rare, it's a rare person who can do that without being really overcome. When we know in ourselves we have the commitment to understanding and growth, we can trust ourselves enough to know that we're not just repressing. We're not just manipulating. We're using skillful avoidance. And if there's times if you find that every unpleasant situation suddenly calls for skillful avoidance, that's when you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I think I need to look at this again. And we learn to trust that balance and find it for ourselves. Practice here in a retreat can help a lot because we can practice with the little situations. You can practice that with the little pain in your knee. You know, watch moving into it. Watch the mind wanting to run away. Feel all that fear and tension. Soften around it. Move back into the pain. Something little, but it's the same tendency of mind. And I'm sure we've all had experiences where something difficult, either in our, in our outer life, in our inner life here, I actually don't even like making that distinction, but just for a way of talking, where there's been something that we just thought was nothing but difficulty to be gotten rid of and finding that through our our willingness to just experience it as it is through our attentive present non-judging being with it it's transformed and we've really learned something very valuable and that kind of experience again strengthens our, our commitment our trust in the whole process And I find it gives us this sense of courage. I found that deepening in myself over the years, that whatever does arise as my path, as my karmic path, that I know 
in this one moment I can be with it. I don't have to add, oh no, but what's it going to be like if this goes on for a year? That's extra. I know in this one moment I can I can be with whatever's arising as my path. And as I was thinking this, I thought, well, ultimately <laughs> there's not much choice anyway. I don't really get to choose what's coming in the next moment. So I can just know that I've understood in the path I have the strength to be with only this one moment. And if that moment means backing off for a little bit, that's okay too. So it's this this attitude, this willingness to be with whatever arises as our path, pleasant as well as unpleasant. We're not looking for the unpleasant, mind you, you know, in order to grow and denying the pleasant either. There's plenty of pleasant, joyful experiences. Being fully present with that, but not this, oh, no, no, it's going away. It comes, you really appreciate, it goes, the next thing comes. It's this willingness to be present without the toing and froing, to see the toing and froing, that allows for understanding to arise because we're then beginning to be able to know what's really going on instead of being lost in our distortions and confusions. Thich Nhat Hanh, one of my favorite things that he says, if you, in case you haven't heard of him, he's a ta, um, no, he's Vietnamese, Zen master, peace activist. Really, I find him quite inspiring. He says that without understanding, we are unable to love. In other words, until we understand, when we understand what's going on in a situation, that naturally love and compassion arise out of that. Because we're there with no preferences, that's what enables us understanding to arise. Robert Aiken, who's a a Zen master out of Hawaii, says, practicing compassion goes hand in hand with practicing realization. On your cushions, you learn first of all to be compassionate to yourself. We vow to save all beings, but how do you save the roughnecks in your own mind? Treat them as neighbors who come to the door when you're meditating. Take a moment to acknowledge them. They're closer than neighbors after all. So if we can take that moment to compassionately acknowledge the roughnecks that show up in our mind, the anger, the self-blame, the hatred, the wanting, the grief, the remorse, the guilt, the list goes on and on. We take that moment to acknowledge them with compassion, clear is that moment of clear mindfulness that allows for clear seeing, for understanding to arise. And it is, in a way, it's an actual practice of loving kindness and compassion because that quality of attention really is the quality of compassionate, loving kindness, acceptance of whatever that roughneck in your mind is. It's, it's been my limited experience that, that true compassion, really deep compassion, arises when we're able to be open to and present for 
what is difficult and fearful in our own experience. Because when we can open to deeper levels of pain in our own experience, we're able to be more present with the same pain in others. It's where the real sense of our interconnectedness comes up. In sitting here and practicing and opening to our own pain, we're really opening to the pain of all others, to the pain of the world. And the compassion that can begin to arise when we see our own suffering and how it's compounded by our not understanding what's going on, that compassion is for every other being we run into when we see or understand is in the same predicament. And opening isn't selective. So when we open to our own difficulties and compassion arises, so also does joy. You find that in the opening we have access to much greater depth of joy and love than when we're so busy trying to avoid anything that's unpleasant. We end up avoiding a lot of what's really beautiful as well without knowing it. So one other thing I want to say comes up a lot when we talk about opening to difficult situations. Just as mindfulness is not strident, forcing, but very attentive and alert, so also it's not passive. And often, in the same way of being hard on myself, I've got to open to anything, we can interpret it as um, anything difficult that happens. I just have to sit back and let it happen. And it can really turn into a kind of victim mentality. And mindfulness is not this passive quality at all. Mindfulness is very alert, inquiring, energetic. And so there can be a difficult situation in not closing to it, but meeting it with real clarity of attention and accepting the situation. That also allows for clear seeing. It doesn't mean we just sit around and let ourselves be abused. In the clear seeing, appropriate action is much more possible. And we can act much sooner and more emphatically to get out of a situation that's causing us harm that we don't need to stay in. But our motive is really one of compassion for ourselves and even for the people in the situation rather than just blind hatred or fear. But this is not at all about whatever happens is unpleasant, I can't do anything about it. Compassionate action, the understanding that comes from clear seeing can be very active much more appropriate action than when we don't see clearly. I mean, look at the people who come to my mind as kind of the embodiments of compassionate action and understanding. I think of like the Dalai Lama or Mother Teresa. They've seen incredible suffering. Just sometimes to walk through a street in India brings up so much pain. Sometimes it's hard for me to be with it. And someone like the Dalai Lama who's seen so much suffering in Tibet, or Mother Teresa who spends her time going out picking up dying people off the streets in Calcutta. They've seen incredible suffering. They're, the Dalai Lama is one of the most inspiring people to be around, I know. He's light and filled with humor and kindness, and they're incredibly energetic. Definitely not passive. I mean, 
Mother Teresa is 80 years old and she's just tripping all around the world doing things. I mean, 10 times more energy than I have. All our energy that's going into resistance and denial gets released for compassionate action, for the actions that come from clear seeing and understanding. So we're not talking about getting heavy and lost in suffering, but in fact just the opposite. So really, even sitting here, I mean, we have plenty of opportunity to work with this. Even the simplest pain in our back, a simple feeling of, I'm bored and I wish I could go home. It doesn't have to be some big, dramatic form of suffering. When we can summon up our sense of commitment and meet whatever it is that's happening with mindfulness, full attention, compassionate, caring attention, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, we find in that one moment the whole world can begin to open up for us. Our whole heart begins to open up. Let's just sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.